Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the compliance evangelist and the author of uh, the Complete Compliance Handbook. And I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 108, for the week ending June 23, 2018, the Heading to Boston edition. First, a word about our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 600 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help your company improve its ethics and compliance programs, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I take a look at the following stories. Inside the fall of Mossack Fonseca, we ask where the next reputational crisis will come from. Will it be something like the child separation scandal, or will it be something from 10 years ago in a corporate restructuring and how this has affected a couple of different country companies? We look at the OECD reports on anti-corruption enforcement in Germany and Norway. We consider an article in the Global Anti-Corruption blog by Keyes Thompson on how Brazil is a model for international enforcement, investigations, and cooperation. Mike Volkoff explains how you should classify your third parties and also how you should build a better business case for a third-party risk management system. We take a look at two articles on auditors behaving badly, one by Tammy Whitehouse about a negative report on KPMG and the Financial Reporting Council from the United Kingdom, a second by Francine McKenna in Market Watch on the KPMG PO. P-C-A-O-B scandal. Jay considers uh, remarks by SEC Chief Jay Clayton around corporate culture. I review my five-part Sherlock Holmes series on how it informs your best practices compliance program. Jay and I will both be in Boston on Monday, June 25, at the offices of Affiliated Monitors for Coffee, Compliance, and Bagels. Uh, if you would like to join us, we have information on the show notes. We still have a couple of seats left. Also, I'm participating in the Compliance Week Technology and Compliance Conference on Tuesday, July, uh, June 26th. I'm uh, offering a couple of complimentary passes to any listeners of this podcast. So if you uh, would like one, email me for details. Uh, and finally, on Thursday, June 28th, uh, here in Houston, I'm going to be having my first book signing. Uh, of the Complete Compliance Handbook, which will be at the River Oaks Bookstore, 3270 Westheimer. So I hope you can join us. It'll be between 5.30 and 7. If you're in Houston, please drop by and get an autographed copy of the top compliance handbook that's been released this year, the Complete Compliance Handbook. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox. I'm the compliance evangelist and the author of the Complete Compliance Handbook, back with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This week, episode 108 for the week ending, June 23, 2018, the Heading to Boston edition. So, Jay, uh, tell tell our listeners about why we're heading to Boston. Uh, on Monday morning at 8 a.m., we are having uh, an event for Tom at Affiliated Monitor's office in Boston, and we're going to talk a little bit compliance, 
ethics, FCPA, and have some bagel and fox to start the morning. So uh, anybody, um, we still have a, a few spots open. So if you want to um, click on to the show notes and join us on Monday morning, we'd love to have you. And uh, I'm also going to be uh, participating in the Compliance Week, a technology and compliance conference on Tuesday at the Harvard Club in Boston. And uh, I've been authorized, Jay, to offer our listeners a complimentary pass. There's going to be anyone listening today or tomorrow in uh, the Boston area, and they'd like to go shoot me an email, and I'll uh, get you the information so that you can attend. So uh, with that, Jay, why don't we uh, hop right into it? Because we had, I thought, some some really interesting stories this week. And for me, it started off with a book review by Dick Casson in, of course, the FCPA blog of a book by Will Fitzgibbon and Ben Hallman of Organized Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, who wrote a book entitled Inside the Fall of Mossack Fonseca. And of course, Mossack Fonseca was the law firm who was uh, facilitating uh, offshore corporations uh, that was um, publicized in the Panama Papers. Um, they uh, This book really details what happened after the leak occurred. And it's clear from uh, even Dick's uh, book review that Mossack Fonseca really had no idea who they were dealing with. They didn't know who their clients were in many cases. Uh, the lawyers in the firm were uh, uh, officers and directors of corporations. They had no idea who the ownership was. And the firm was desperately trying to uh, identify uh, who were the owners of the companies and who were actually even their clients. So uh, for those uh, who believe that Mossack Fonseca was not engaged in uh, any criminal, if not shady activity, I think this book really lays that to rest. But equally importantly, Jay, it lays out once again the uh, kind of the rationale and how and why you need to be careful around shell corporations. It's a, the book's a fascinating read. It's a great read. Uh, Dick's uh, book review is uh, quite excellent. Great. So um, next up, uh, we have something that's very timely with the events of this week. And uh, Sam Rubenfeld at the uh, risk and compliance um, section at the Wall Street Journal takes a look at companies caught up in Trump's zero tolerance immigration policy and how they see big risks. And, uh, you know, we quite often talk about reputational risks on this podcast and it seems that uh, if you are a company and you are contracted by the federal federal government and you have a part to play in uh, separating uh, immigrant children from their parents uh, there is probably nothing good that can come of that and uh, Sam takes looks at, at a couple companies here um, that basically a number of companies struck contracts to help carry out policy on behalf of the government. Others, such as some airlines, said they wouldn't participate. And um, James Walker, a vice president of, of a pu public relations firm, Ruder Finn, said companies tend to steer clear of political issues that are not material to their business. But there comes a point in time when business needs to take a stand with their communication and action. And there's a couple companies that Sam takes a look at, one called Comprehensive Health Services. 
and then uh, MVMV Inc., and another nonprofit called Southwest Key Programs. And both of these companies have gone to uh, great pains to try to dif- uh, distance themselves from the uh, uh, issue here happening. Uh, Southwest issued a written statement saying that it does not support separating families at the border, adding, for every child who has come through our sheltered doors, we start on day one to reunite them with their parents or family sponsor and to provide the kind of service that will help them. Um, and MVM has said that they have not pursued any new contacts associated rather contracts associated with the undocumented families and children. Both organizations seem to struggle with clarifying their roles in the immigrant detention issue and successfully controlling how they are perceived. So, um, you know, reputational risk and um, just a a horrible thing to uh, unfortunately have attached to any company's name. So, Jay, the, um, I guess there was a couple of different directions I, I thought about this article. The first one is uh, the companies that uh, issued statements, uh, they clearly knew what was going on, and they clearly were a part of the entire process, and they're really trying to basically claim Mino Alamo here, and that uh, the um, their statements really lack, uh, I thought, uh, several key elements. One, they, they didn't say um, – they didn't apologize for their actions. They really seem to lack empathy. But what interested me was um, uh, really uh, kind of Sam's entire point that uh, your reputational risk can literally turn on a dime. And here I would point you to uh, Microsoft, uh, who has a contract with uh, ICE, and uh, Microsoft employees uh, kind of were up in arms about this. And as as late as, as, or as recently as January, February, Microsoft was touting this contract with ICE uh, to provide software services uh, as a a business uh, plus for Microsoft. And so uh, the companies were, these companies were actually involved in the uh, transportation and housing of uh, separated children. It's pretty hard to have much of any sympathy from them, particularly when they're being paid to uh, engage in this kind of behavior. But the companies that, you know, are, are it's so intertwined. Our businesses are so intertwined with the federal government. You can even think of the business you and I are engaged in, uh, the permeable uh, layer of or the permeable membrane moving uh, in simply sitting across the table from the government, uh, dealing with the government. Uh, uh, if you have a contract with the government, uh, all of those things. So, um I think it, it really uh, speaks to a need that companies need to be uh, very nimble and very agile. Uh, Microsoft has tried to distance itself from that contract. The problem is they've got a contract uh, with ICE. And whether there'll be additional fallout uh, to them, whether other uh, tech companies who are supporting uh, these efforts by immigration and naturalization or ICE, I should say, uh, to separate children and uh, not put families back together, there may be reputational risks. Uh, things can just uh, really change in a heartbeat. Jay, the, um, were you going to talk about the um, nor, um, article about France as well? Um, yeah. So um, uh, this also comes from Risk Compli- Compliance Journal at the Wall Street Journal from Ben DiPietro. And uh, basically, uh, they're looking back on um, some problems that French telecommunication 
communications company Orange or Orange had. And uh, basically, the company finds itself in a reputational time warp after judges last week ordered a trial for the company, its former chief execs and other executives and charges that they engaged in. And I haven't heard this term in a while, psychological harassment against workers during a restructuring a decade ago. And some uh, workers actually committed suicide under these situations. So um, the chief executive at the time, uh, Didier Lombard, resigned in 2010 following criticism of the way he handled staff reductions. He denied any wrongdoing at the time, and an attorney representing Mr. Lombard was quoted by Reuters last week as saying uh, that charges were absurd. The lawyer couldn't be reached for con comment. So, uh, again, a sh shocking case. Um, Tom, what, what are your thoughts on this? So this one uh, really presents a different problem than uh, those presented by the uh, companies engaged with the uh, separation of children from their families and their failure to uh, reunite them after the president's uh, change of heart. Uh, this really speaks to something that uh, what is lurking in your past? Uh, just this week, Jay, we saw the uh, the head of Intel had to resign for having a consensual affair uh, with a fellow Intel employee at, at some point in the past. We don't know when. Um, the uh, and no evidence or even allegation that was a non-consensual or a harassment situation. So here we had a French telecom company ten years ago have a corporate restructuring comes out with a new name Orange SA, uh, but uh, they apparently were some fairly severe layoffs. And you and I have both worked in companies where there have been restructurings and uh, certainly been layoffs. Uh, that is not something uh, uh, unknown to the U.S. employee, but in France, they have a little bit different uh, work system and uh, values that employees uh, are, are treated perhaps uh, less harshly than in the United States. Nevertheless, there were actual allegations that people killed themselves because of the pressure uh, that they were put under to resign, retire, or or be restructured, if, if that's the, the right phrase. The Former CEO who engaged in this had to resign following his criticism. But now uh, what uh, brought this article up is that there's actually going to be a trial on this issue. And uh, I have tried cases where people uh, or family, uh, deceased <clears throat> heirs of deceased family members claimed that the workload caused someone's death. The stress of, of too much work uh, caused uh, death. And that that type of claim is a very high bar because you have to have causal evidence that the stress caused the death. And so here, uh, you know, if we applied that standard, a French court has said there is evidence that the suicides were as a result of uh, the pressure put on to resign. Uh, Orange is, is in a, a very difficult position uh, as Ben points out, because one, you, you do want to have sensitivity, certainly around people who, who kill themselves or commit suicide, take their own life, um, but you have to defend your case. So uh, it, it would surprise me if this case ever got to the light of day that it didn't settle. Nevertheless, it points out that what happened many years ago that uh, was not really seen as uh, a potential damage or a risk, 10 years later, uh, it's a legal risk. And it's a real legal risk, and it's going to trial. So uh, a very difficult situation for the company, and uh, going to be interested to see how this plays out.
Indeed. So, Tom, we've got a couple of reports now, again, from our friends of the WSJ, Sam Rubenfeld and Henry Cutter. Why don't you tell us how uh, Norway and Germany are faring in their rankings from the uh, OECD? So, uh, most of our listeners, I think, Jay, are aware the OECD has 13 good practices of an anti-corruption compliance program. They put out a plethora of white papers around that issue. And it, one of the things, very, very valuable things they do is member companies uh, do deep dive investigations of other member companies. Uh, and reports are issued uh, discussing their findings. And there was a couple of findings uh, over the past couple of uh, reports, one on Germany, where there were um, – uh, concerns from OECD on Germany's uh, lack of or their low enforcement rate of bribery cases against corporations, and that since 1999, only 25% of investigations have resulted in either the company being found liable or the company pleading guilty. So uh, there have been a, a large number of uh, individual prosecutions, but it seems the uh, that's the focus of the German prosecutors and the OECD would like to see uh, more culpable companies held liable. In Norway, it's a little bit different problem because they may be changing. There's a move afoot to change um, Norwegian criminal law, which would narrow the country's ability to assert jurisdiction on bribery offenses committed abroad. Basically, it would say that the change in the law would only allow a bribery uh, enforcement action against a company where the bribery action took place in Norway. So if you have a Norwegian company doing business in Saudi Arabia or Middle East or you name the country, Jay, uh, the Norwegian anti-bribery law would not apply. So uh, that could be a, a fairly strong narrowing of uh, Norway's ability to prosecute cases of foreign bribery, and the OECD called that out in a report last week. Uh, we had a very interesting article, Jay, in the uh, Global Anti-Corruption blog by Keyes Thompson about uh, the Brazilian model for international cooperation in foreign bribery. And in view of the Department of Justice's new piling on policy or anti-piling on policy, uh, formerly the one pie policy, in all of those issues, I thought it was a really interesting way to consider international uh, enforcement of anti-corruption. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, so um, this is really taking a look at the um, cooperation almost from an economic perspective. And Keyes goes on to talk about that there's usually um, two different sides of um, a corruption matter. And um, at one point, you have a developed company who's usually on the supply side of transnational bribery case. And then you have a developing country on the demand side. So too often, the supply side company uh, country enforcers like the U.S. take an outsized role in transnational bribery cases, while the companies where the bribery take place do too little. And I think Detroit, Detroit, I'm sorry, I think Brazil has been a real um, shining example about how a country can make a difference. And if you look at some of these Brazilian matters that have been in the news over the years, Embraer, Odebrecht, Rolls-Royce, SBM Offshore, and Keppel Offshore, uh, the amount of cooperation between the United States regulators and the Brazilian regulators has just really gotten to a point where they're moving together in lockstep 
And um, to address your piling on um, statement a little bit earlier, now we're seeing uh, more of those um, penalties going to the home country where this happened. And, you know, Brazil over the last uh, three to five years has made huge strides. There's been a complete buy-in by many of the folks in the legal system, many of the folks there just concerned about changing the perception of the country. And uh, if you look at it through this demand side and supply side uh, lens, it's a very interesting way to uh, characterize the the work uh, that has happened in Brazil. And, uh, you know, basically... Uh, Keys looks at the fact that uh, this capacity has led to investigations and a willingness to target individuals. Uh, there's been incredible information sharing between the Brazilian uh, enforcement authorities in the U.S., and there's been respect for Brazil's settlement regime. So I, I think it really does speak highly to this model, and we can see now that um, when you look at the statements that are being made by uh, DOJ and um, other global regulators, they are talking that there is usually anywhere from three to eight different pe- different authorities involved in most enforcement actions now. So there really is a global trend in this model for uh, cooperation has become well-established. So I thought it was a great article that really brought up some good points. And it really, I think, Jay points to uh, exactly what you're talking about, which is this model of cooperation and um, how that can serve both companies going forward. Uh, the only thing I would add, Jay, is uh, we highlighted this last week, but I wanted to reemphasize it. Remarks by Dan Kahn, the head of the FCPA unit at the Department of Justice. He said that the anti-piling on policy requires companies' participation as well because they have to self-disclose <clears throat> literally across the globe to regulators and then also cooperate with those regulators. So it's a two-way street, and that uh, that uh, certainly is true with uh, the cooperation uh, that the Brazilian prosecutors have shown. So if companies cooperate with uh, the regulators and the prosecutors, I think uh, it's going to be better for them at the end of the day. Great. So um, our friend Mike Volkov has third parties on his mind. What is what, what is Mike thinking about? So uh, Mike wrote a really interesting and I thought timely piece that uh, everyone should consider from time to time, which is uh, classifying your third parties prior to performing due diligence. That's really the first step. And um, he talked about the, the four general categories, commercial agents, uh, commissioned agents, vendors and suppliers, consultants, distributors, and resellers and partners, uh, and uh, kind of laid those out in a category. And also, Jay, he's got a much more detailed white paper uh, on how to make the business case for a third-party risk management system. Uh, the blog post he uh, put up was on the Navex blog, Ethics and Compliance Matters. We haven't really talked as much about this blog site uh, on our podcast, but I would uh, I write for that blog occasionally, and uh, this is one that you should bookmark and check out every day because it has a wide variety of commentators. They have Navex personnel. They have uh, people like myself, Mike Volkoff, uh, other lawyers uh, commenting, other compliance practitioners. Mike Matt Kelly writes for it, and I think it's a great resource. And uh, Mike's article, uh, you really can't talk enough, Jay, about your third-party risk management program, the entire life cycle of third-party risk management and how important that is. And Mike's uh, articles recall that for us and how we need to uh, consider your um, – 
classification of third parties. And if you haven't done that for a while, uh, you need to do so. Uh, it might be time uh, to revisit. Take a look at Mark's uh, blog. Take a look at his article and then revisit your own program to see if there needs to be a modification. So last week, what did we have? Did we have bankers behaving badly or were there auditors behaving badly? We did bankers behaving badly. So usually with bankers, you probably have auditors too, right? Kind of taking a look over their shoulder and making sure they're characterizing their assets correctly and their transactions and Unfortunately, uh, we got two stories now, one in Spain and one in the UK. And uh, Tammy Whitehouse uh, writes in Compliance Week that audit regulars in the United Kingdom have taken off their gloves in the assessment of the audit quality among the major firms, especially the big four. And, um, you know, instead of seeing uh, the accuracy rates of their uh, audits going up, uh, there's been uh, precipitous falls for most of the big four. And um, there is something in the UK called the Financial Reporting Council, the FRC, and they issue inspection reports on all the major firms. And the FRC said from its 2017 to 2018 inspection cycle, they've identified 72% of inspected audits as requiring no more than limited improvement, which fell from 78%. But that means that almost approximately 30% of the work being done by the big four could be much better. And um, we've got it in the show notes, so you can take a look at who's doing well and, and who could need some more help. But with a lot of these scandals that we've seen addressed, uh, it's unfortunate now that uh, the big four comes into uh, question about their actions. And one thing that seems a little bit more nefarious is we have an article from Francine McKenna, uh, Market Watch, and it says KPMG won the BBVA audit with stolen data about rivals inspections. Did you want to take that one, Tom? Sure. Um, let me just uh, start or backtrack a little bit about to the uh, Tammy's article. Uh, the article, as much as it excoriated auditors, it focused its ultimate excoriation on KPMG because almost 40 percent of KPMG's audits that were reviewed required uh, improvements. And indeed, among the um, top 300, the approval rating for KPMG was at only 50 percent. So uh, this is not good news for KPMG. Uh, KPMG is in deep, deep doo-doo for its <laughs> actions in South Africa, uh, uh, approving uh, uh, auditing of the Gupta family and being captured essentially by the bribers and bribe receivers in South Africa on their audits there. They've essentially lost all of their South African business. They had to clean house and get rid of their South African partners, bring in a new team, but uh, they've lost quite a bit of business there. So they have this uh, report from uh, the UK Financial Reporting Council, but that may actually pale besides the next story. And the next story is a continuation of one. And uh, I don't know if, uh, Jay, how well you might know Francine McKenna or how many uh, of our listeners might know Francine. But I told her when this story broke that uh, this was the story she was born to write. And this is just a horrific story where KPMG uh, paid um, um, 
employees at the PCAOB to get inside information about upcoming audits so that they could uh, share that with their uh, their uh, clients. But in the article that we're referencing today, turns out KPMG actually uh, won the BBVA audit in Spain with stolen data, the data that they bribed to get from the PCAOB. They were able to beat out <coughs> their competitors, uh, Deloitte and um, uh, EY, for this uh, uh, audit for BBVA. Uh, BBVA was forced to solicit bids from other audit firms due to the EU's mandatory auditor rotation rules. So um, the um, uh, the story is a continuation of the uh, partners. And this this was not, you know, some low level uh, uh, employee who uh, had a friend over at the PCAOB that was being uh, uh, sent work. These were uh, heads of national practice groups who were running this scam and they were hiring PCAOB, former PCAOB uh, auditors to come to EY, excuse me, to KPMG and uh, continue to uh, obtain uh, inside information, which they then used for, for originally we were told, or rather Francine reported, they were using that to uh, clean up audits for KPMG clients. But now we have this uh, uh, episode where uh, they actually um, won an audit with a purloined data. So, uh, Ooh, there we go for Sherlock Holmes week. I knew we'd get that word purloined in, but, uh, right. one thing, uh, you, you know, they always say when you take an action, you want to make sure that when they write about it in the New York times, that everything will be okay. So yep. uh, imagine the chagrin of this person who said, uh, um, uh, the same day Sai used her personal email account to respond to Sweet's personal email saying, quote, thank you so much. I have printed out each of it so it will only be on the hard copy that I read. I promise to take appropriate care of the and appropriate care of this. I appreciate your help and I'm sure you've heard it many times, but I'm going to add it to the other accolades. I am so glad you came to KPMG. You've been a huge help to the firm since you've joined and I'll be in touch regarding our proposal effort. So uh, I guess this person is admitting that she has sensitive information and she's going to print it out. So she'll be the only one who see is, sees it, except for all these people like you and me who are reading the email after the fact. Uh, oops. Oops. So, oops. So, yeah, this uh, KPMG, uh, uh, they were not behaving well. They were behaving badly. And these uh, – this information is just going to be uh, more body blows. And, uh, you know, you need to uh, if you don't uh, follow Francine on Market Watch, you need to. She she um, is a former big four auditor. She knows this stuff inside and out. <clears throat> she went into blogging and now she's into journalism and she's going to be like I said, she was born to write this story. So we had some um, remarks, Jay, about corporate culture from SEC chief Jay Clayton. Uh, Matt Kelly uh, raised in, at least some questions about, about those, but I know that's something that you think about uh, quite a bit. I know that's something that Affiliated Monitors not only thinks about but works on and uh, considers for its clients and those that uh, it, it may have under monitorship. So where did you kind of shake out on, uh, on either Matt's piece or the remarks from Jay Clayton himself? Well, first of all, you know, Kudos to Matt. He is always uh, on the cutting edge and 
there's a lot of stuff that uh, percolates in his brain and that he's thinking about. And uh, this thing, uh, this article is, is really important that a lot of times we talk about culture and whether it's culture for the company or culture for the employees. And a lot of times it seems like a very ephemeral concept out there that, you know, you've got codes and policies and ethics and procedure, but what is the company's culture? And here, uh, Matt looks at some remarks made recently by uh, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. And basically, recently at a conference, uh, Clayton opened with the importance of management truly knowing and understanding the corporate culture, which honestly struck Matt as common sense. But why specifically must the C-suite and board understand corporate culture? Because negotiating your way out of misconduct mess can really get sticky if you don't. So Matt spoke about even though you can say what your company's mission is and what you're doing, there is quite often, um, you know, kind of like the game of telephone when you pass something on, Words might mean one thing to me, and they might mean something different to Mr. Clayton, something different to Matt, and something different to you. So um, Matt really addressed the fact about how uh, miscommunication can happen in organizations and that these uh, things that happen with these key words, they just don't happen in a vacuum. And his conclusion was that um, the work of emphasizing which objectives matter more to others, that's priorities, and how you drive employees to focus on their objectives, which is compensation. And that's what needs to be considered to keep corporate culture together. So there's really two parts of that promise there. And although you may say your, uh, your you know, company core activity is that you're going to provide the highest standard of medical service or whatever, that's, um, you know, sometimes aspirational. But the question is, how do you um, put this out there? And the SEC is putting this out there for in terms of, you know, their mission is to make sure that people are able to, with confidence, invest in companies and know that that information is secure. But at the same time, Mr. Clayton has been brought in as part of uh, the Trump administration's uh, deregulatory agenda. So there sometimes can be a real uh, miscommunication there. Your thoughts on the article, Tom? Cultural dissonance, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I would take that. (laughs) So, uh, you know, on the one level, Matt says this is pretty basic stuff and everyone should – not only know this, but believe it. And on on one level, I do agree with that. But I guess the thing that struck me, Jay, is uh, Jay Rosen, uh, not Jay Clayton, is that um, when you have the chairman of the SEC talking about corporate culture, I never think that's a bad thing. I think that's always a good thing. Now, Matt properly raised whose culture or what stakeholders culture. And perhaps that's a question that should have been more fleshed out? Is it long-term investors? Is Are they different than short-term investors? What about the in-between, the long or the short-term investors? What about the stakeholders? What about the employees, uh, et cetera? Nevertheless, uh, when you have the number two at the Department of Justice, um, Rod Rosenstein, uh, talking about corporate culture, when you have the head of the SEC talking about corporate culture, 
Uh, I think that sends a powerful signal, not only to compliance officers, but to corporations as a whole, that the government's starting to think about this and they're starting to look at this. And that if you get in any kind of enforcement action, this may become a critical factor. And so have you have you tested your corporate culture? Have you measured your corporate culture? Have you tried to improve your corporate culture? Have you tried to enhance your corporate culture? Have you even looked at your corporate culture? So um, perhaps stepping back to a, a larger view of this, I just found it um, – I've always find it good when you have uh, senior regulatory leaders and senior prosecutors talking about corporate culture. So we, we mentioned that word purloined a couple moments ago. Uh, tell us about Sherlock Holmes week. So, Jay, I just had a ton of fun this past week. I did a five-part blog series on uh, Sherlock Holmes and um, compliance and how reading the great novelist uh, A. Conan Doyle can inform your compliance program. And so uh, I had a different theme each week. And the t- uh, Monday it was uh, – the adventure of the red circle and communication and how communication is a part of, uh, remember, it's a part of the 10 hallmarks equally with training. Uh, day two was uh, the adventure of the Abbey Grange and institutional justice that a compliance program must facilitate institutional justice. On uh, day three, I took a look at the adventure of the Priory School and criminality. And there I really used it as an opening to explore the ACFE's recent report to the nations on uh, fraud. And I focused on the corruption component of their fraud report and uh, looked at uh, that type of criminality. And can you draw any inferences from their fraud or general fraud findings to help in your anti-corruption compliance program. On Thursday, I took a look at the adventure of the six Napoleons. And this is uh, one of the few stories where uh, Lestrade really goes out of his way uh, to compliment Holmes. And uh, he says, in fact, I've seen you handle a good many cases, Mr. Holmes. And I don't know that I've ever seen a more workman one, workmanlike one than that. And the workmanlike part, uh, I thought was Holmes teaching Lestrade or through his actions, rather, show not tell for you recovering script writers out there, uh, showing him the steps to take. So it, it was really mentoring, uh, I thought, uh, Inspector Lestrade. And then I closed out day Friday with the adventure of the empty house, which, of course, was the first story in the return of Sherlock Holmes uh, after he uh, had his incident at Reichenbach Falls. And in this story, I took a look at the imagination that Holmes engaged in with himself to come up with a solution uh, for um, uh, the murders uh, that were committed. And as uh, Colonel Sebastian Moran attempted to assassinate Holmes. So it was a lot of fun. I got a lot of great comments. People just love Sherlock Holmes. People love when I can tie the stories together. It made me realize I I probably need to do this a little bit more often. So uh, Maybe once a month going forward, I'm going to try and have a, a theme series like this. Um, I think probably the next one, I'm going to go dive back into some Shakespeare. But it's a lot of fun for me, and uh, hopefully it'll be a few points that uh, people will be able to remember for their uh, compliance programs going forward. So um, as we said uh Jay and I will be in Boston Monday morning at the offices of Affiliated Monitors. I certainly hope that uh, you can come and join us. Uh, We've got links to um, the agenda and the um, registration uh, on today's show notes. 
once again, if you're in Boston and you want to have some compliance and you want to have some bagels and you want to have some coffee and you want to talk about my new book or you want to talk to Jay Rosen, uh, one half of This Week in FCPA, I hope that uh, you will join us. Jay, uh, I don't know if you'll be able to make my first book signing event, but next Thursday here in Houston at the River Oaks Bookstore, I'm having a book signing in honor of the Complete Compliance Handbook, which continues to be a hot seller. And uh, uh, as usual, I've linked to um, the um, in the show notes where you can purchase a copy either directly from Amazon or if you want a uh, autographed copy, you can get one uh, from me as well. So uh, with all of that, Jay, uh, you want to take us home? Yeah, just uh, one last uh, travel note. Did you do you want to tell us tell our listeners uh, what what you did in Cincinnati this week? Yes. Uh, before I do that, I would note for the record that the Astros uh, are once again leading the Western Division and are tied for the best record in baseball. Uh, we went on a baseball um, stadium tour, and my wife and I went to the Great American Park in Cincinnati. So we continued our. Uh, Trek. We did some other things, but I think for me, it was going to the baseball game in Cincinnati, my first time ever. But for Mrs. Fox, what was the uh, the the bobblehead draw that brought you to Great America Ballpark? So, for those who may not know, they uh, the Cincinnati Zoo last year had a baby hippo born prematurely. It's Fiona the hippo, and there was a Fiona bobblehead night at. A great American Park. And my wife is a lover of all things hippo. So we went to Fiona Bobblehead Night. We coupled that with a Cincinnati Zoo tour where we actually were able to view Fiona. So um, although in the repose position, she was not too active. Nevertheless, uh, my wife was thrilled. And we now have uh, a plethora of uh, Fiona-related gear and uh, two Fiona Bobbleheads. Well, Tom, you you are a good man, so uh, I just wanted to give you kudos for that. So on behalf of that good man, Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for uh, this week in FCPA, episode 108, for the week ending July 23rd, the Heading to Boston edition. Uh, as always, it's great to spend time with you to... Uh, talk about compliance ethics and FCPA matters. And as Tom said, if you're in the Boston area on Monday morning, uh, please join us at Affiliated Monitors for some bagels and fox. Thanks so much and have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week in FCPA. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you will rate our podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. If you have any questions, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com and jrosen at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Once again, if you're going to be in Boston on Monday, June 25th, I hope you'll join Jay and I for breakfast bagels and compliance at the offices of Affiliated Monitors. If you're going, if you'd like a complimentary ticket to the Compliance Week event, Technology and Compliance on Tuesday, June 26th, please shoot me an email for details. And finally, if you're going to be in Houston on Thursday, June 28th, I hope you'll drop by for my first book signing of the bestseller of The Complete Compliance Handbook. This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.